At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Psalm 90. Psalm 90, and we'll be reading Psalm 90 and Psalm 91. Let's give attention now to God's Holy Word in Psalms 90 and 91, beginning in Psalm 90, verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever You had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in Your sight, are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by Your anger, and by Your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before You, our secret sins in the light of Your countenance. For all our days have passed away in Your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are seventy years, and if by reason of strength they are eighty years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which You have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let Your work appear to Your servants and Your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Psalm 91 He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. 
because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because He has set His love upon Me, therefore I will deliver Him. I will set Him on high, because He has known My name. He shall call upon Me, and I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will deliver Him and honor Him. With long life I will satisfy Him and show Him My salvation. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Relying upon God for His help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Psalm 91. The passage that we read there as we focus our attention this morning upon verse 1. Last evening we considered the first half of this verse that He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. We considered God as our dwelling place. We considered the secret place of the Almighty. The the friendship, the intimacy that we have with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we focus on the latter half of that first verse as we think of what's actually true of the one who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. The one who dwells in the secret place of the Most High, we're told, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And you see an explanation of this in the subsequent verses. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust, that is, take refuge. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. It goes on to say that His truth is our shield and buckler, and that we will not only be saved from destruction, but even from the fear of death itself. Now last evening, we reminded ourselves of the connection between Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, and Psalm 91 which many Jewish rabbis believe was written by Moses. And we can see many reasons why that very well may be the case. But whether it was written by Moses or later by David and um, included right next to Psalm 90, perhaps by Ezra under inspiration when the canon of the Psalter was put together, whatever it is, these two Psalms are indelibly and, and inseparably connected. Psalm 90 sets before us a number of things that Moses is experiencing in the wilderness with the Israelites as they wander in futility 
experiencing uh, various aspects of fallenness in this world. Uh, We've seen that Moses in that psalm speaks to the Lord in such a way as to reflect a number of aspects of his own life experience. His own homelessness. A stranger in a strange land. And yet, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. And so, he calls upon the Lord to be His home, His dwelling place, in the secret place of the Almighty, uh, or the Most High, if you will. Also, we see that, in fact, Moses speaks perhaps as much as in anywhere else in the Scripture of the reality of death in this fallen world. Uh, you see the brevity of life. You see how we, we sprout up in a day, we wither in a day, even those who live 70 years, 80 years, even those who've lived the longest in human history, well nigh unto a thousand years, it's but a watch in the night compared to our eternal God who calls us to return uh, to the earth. And so Moses reflects on his own experience with homelessness, with death, and also uh, the patient endurance of Moses comes through in this wilderness futility Toward the end of Psalm 90, you can see that uh, he's calling upon the Lord to give them joy and meaning and fruitfulness even as they wander around in what would be viewed externally as a time of futility and frustration. He desires that even the beauty of the Lord would be upon them and they would see the glory of the Lord and, and that as they patiently endure and instruct and equip the next generation, and train them and send them forth into the promised land that the Lord would establish the work of their hands. So we we, we saw there Moses reflecting on homelessness and reflecting on death and patiently enduring as he looks to the reward. And we saw that Psalm 91 answers those prayers. Psalm 91 provides a dwelling place in and under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. We saw that last night. We won't uh, revisit that. But in addition to a dwelling place, Psalm 91 proclaims an answer to Moses' prayer concerning the reality of death. It provides deliverance from death. And at the end of Psalm 91, it rewards the patient endurance of the believing people of God. As Moses looked to the reward by faith, we're told elsewhere, Even so, God rewards His believing people. He hears their prayer. He honors them. He gives them long life. 70 years, 80 years, 969 years. No, eternal life in the world to come. He shows them His salvation. And we saw that all of this is through union with the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. Psalm 91 is addressed to Christ and all those united to Him by faith. Because it's addressed to the One, verse 13, who shall tread upon that roaring lion, Satan himself, who appears in Psalm 22 around the cross. He appears in 1 Peter 5 as a lion seeking to devour us. He shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent he shall trample underfoot. And so as Christ is wounded on His heel through His death on the cross, and as the serpent dangles from His heel and He crushes the serpent's head, abolishing death through His own death on the cross, 
and rising again, He does that not for Himself, but for all His believing people throughout the ages. All of those individual believers who make the Lord their refuge and their dwelling place. And it's a beautiful thing. So we've considered God as our dwelling place. This morning we consider this deliverance from death. Now as I said, Moses' prayer in Psalm 90 describes a fallen world that is plagued by physical death. And this relates to Moses' own experience in his life. He was threatened with death through the infanticide that Pharaoh had um, proclaimed in the land of Egypt, the laws that were in place. Moses' parents put him in a basket on the Nile. His life was threatened there. Uh, So on and so forth. Moses eventually identified with the people of God who were suffering from enslavement and bondage. And at one point, an Egyptian was seeking to take the life, or at least threatening the life, of one of the Hebrew slaves. And Moses, in defending that Hebrew, took the life of the Egyptian. And then Moses' life was in jeopardy. And then later, when God raised Moses up 40 years subsequent uh, to bring his people out of bondage in Egypt, Moses watched as all the firstborn sons in Egypt died and there was weeping and wailing. And then he saw when God brought Israel through the Red Sea and then the waves crashed down upon Pharaoh and his hosts, he saw great death and destruction. These things were also in the experience of Israel in the wilderness. Again, just rehashing from last night, just a few brief references, but you have the incident of the golden calf where 3,000 idolaters are killed. You have Nadab and Abihu with their strange fire, unbiblical worship consumed with fire from heaven, the sons of Aaron. You have God's judgment that killed many at Taborah, the place of burning. Uh, Kibrath Hatava, the graves of lust. God struck many dead there. Kadesh Barnea, where they were supposed to enter the promised land by faith, but the ten spies brought a bad report, persuaded them to try and return to Egypt. And Moses saw ten of those spies struck dead. He saw an army of Israelites foolishly try to go into the land after that point, And they, many of them, died. And he had to watch throughout the wilderness wanderings as 603,448 non-Levitical Israelites died in the wilderness and their carcasses were buried in the sand. Not to mention Korah's rebellion with Dathan and Abiram, the fiery serpents, Baal Peor when 23 or 24,000 Israelites were killed in one day, and the wars with Sion and Og, the kings of the Transjordan region. So Moses, Israel, they're seeing these things. They see Miriam and Aaron die of natural causes. They see Moses die. Uh, he, he goes up on Mount Pisgah and dies. So death is a reality throughout their experience and therefore throughout Psalm 90. And death is a reality in our experience as well. We don't have to live long in this world before we come face to face with the reality of death. Death in our immediate family. Death in our extended family. Uh, the death of a co-worker. The death of a classmate. Some of us have spoken before about uh, class reunions and you know those that have been going to these 
get-togethers for decades, and each year there's fewer and fewer people, fewer and fewer people coming to the class reunion. We can't escape the reality of death and really the insight that we find in Psalm 90, where it's not candy-coating it, it's just setting it out in reality. Uh, Verse 5, you carry them away like a flood. They're like a sleep. Uh, In the morning, they're like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it's cut down and withers. And that's that. Death is a reality. And we see it in our own experience. We cannot escape this thing called death. We can speak of death and taxes. We can speak of the inevitability. And, and we, it, it's all fine and good from an intellectual standpoint. But when you come face to face with it, you have to reckon with it. And, and how are you going to reckon with that? How are you going to deal with that? You're just going to be like uh, people at a lot of funerals. You know, you, you go to a funeral and they celebrate the person's life and, and they don't really talk much about death or about where that person may be or anything along those lines. They don't talk about your death, anyone's death. It's all uh, fun and games and wear your Hawaiian shirt and let's go to the pub afterward because that's what Bill would have wanted anyway. Well, my friends, death is a reality and we can try to escape it. But Psalm 90 sets it before us. The beauty is that Psalm 91 promises the believer deliverance from death through the death of Christ. As I already mentioned, Psalm 91 verse 13 points us to Christ, the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. And it points us to all those who believe in Christ and are united to Christ. Romans 16.20, the Roman believers God will crush Satan under their feet shortly. And so we share in his victory over death. He's defeated death. He's abolished death. We'll see exactly what that means. But it's, it's most definitely the case, as you read Psalm 91, that it promises the believer, the one who takes refuge uh, in the secret place of the Most High by faith and is united to Christ's deliverance from death. Now, the deliverance promised in Psalm 91 does not include the total absence of physical suffering and death. So let's be clear about that. The deliverance promised in Psalm 91 does not include total absence of physical suffering and death. And there are a number of reasons, uh, and perhaps you say, well, why do we even need reasons for this? But there are some important reasons why we need to assert that first. It would be contrary to the psalm itself. If you look with me at verse 15, and the latter verses here especially, we're going to be, Lord willing, considering these this evening in particular reference to the Lord Jesus Christ as we come to the Lord's table. So understand that. But for those in Christ, this applies as well. Verse 15, He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. So in this case, in this particular case of this verse, it's not speaking of deliverance from death and destruction by way of avoiding it entirely, that it doesn't come near us at all, okay, as is spoken in some of the other verses. But here it's saying that in the midst of trouble, and that word trouble could be translated adversity, anguish, tribulation, 
distress. In the midst of that distress, in the midst of that trouble and adversity, the Lord will be present with His believing people. Very important to see that. So we're not, we're, we're not promised a life where there is no physical suffering and death. But as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He'll be with us and he, His rod and staff will comfort us. Another reason why we can be absolutely confident that uh, this deliverance does not include the total absence of physical suffering and death is that would quite frankly be contrary to the facts of the historical setting of these wilderness psalms that, that form the first two psalms of, the, of book four of the Psalter. These psalms point us to Moses in the wilderness, and guess what? Moses took shelter under the shadow of God's wings through saving faith in Christ. So did Aaron, so did Miriam, so did Joshua and Caleb, uh, and they all died. Even Joshua and Caleb, who lived for many, many years, survived the wilderness wandering. We said there were 603,448 non-Levitical Israelites who died in the wilderness, but uh, there were two who didn't, Joshua and Caleb, but they still died, right? They still eventually endured their own measure of physical suffering and death. So clearly Psalm 91, which has a lot of relevance, quite frankly, for Joshua and Caleb. If we had time, we could have a whole other sermon just on that. But the fact of the matter is they still died. So it's not promising the believer absence of suffering and death. Also, uh, the absence, the total absence of suffering and death would be contrary to the holy desires of every true believer. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 says that as we walk by faith, not by sight, that the fact of the matter is we as believers would rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. That for us, like Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Not that physical suffering and death is something that we want to be thinking of in an unhealthy way. Uh, It's unpleasant. It's unnatural. It's grievous. We mourn. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. But the fact is that especially for ourselves, this is a doorway into the presence of Jesus Christ. And We can look at God driving Adam and Eve out of the garden, away from the tree of life, lest they eat it and live forever, whatever that may mean. And we can view that as a kindness because for the believer, we don't actually want to live in this world forever. Uh, What a hell on earth that would be. Uh, As much as we love to to, to congregate with the people of God, we love our families, our friends, and and there's much to be thankful for in this world, yet it would be hell to remain absent from Christ and to live in this world on and on forever. That's what the world wants. That's what the unconverted desire. That's the kind of long life and eternal life they would desire, not so for the believer. We don't want to spend eternity here. It's also contrary to our future glory. Uh, The Scriptures are clear that the sufferings of this life are actually working for us to produce glory in the world to come. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.17 For our affliction, 
which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, we don't welcome affliction on the front end, but when it comes, and when it comes in the path of duty and serving the Lord Jesus Christ, we can look at even the greatest affliction, as Paul did, as momentary, as light, in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. But notice, it's not just that. The affliction is working for us the eternal weight of glory. The suffering and the pain in the path of duty in serving Christ is actually working for us. And, and what exactly does that mean? We're, I'm not here to suggest or to expound exactly what it means except to say that it's clearly saying there's a connection. And so the suffering, even our own death in this world, is part of the means by which we're increasingly conformed to Christ and fitted for heaven. And, and there's something in our heavenly glory that is inseparably connected to that suffering. It works it. It produces it by the hand of God. So we wouldn't want to lose. Uh, we wouldn't want any total absence of physical suffering and death. Though it is grievous, we see its role. And we wouldn't want to give it up. Uh, in particular cases, of course, we pray that God would remove these things. But when He doesn't, we understand what these things are producing for us. Uh, you can see in Romans chapter 8 that we are more than conquerors in all of the afflictions God sends into our lives. It's not just in spite of uh, the, the many things He lists in Romans chapter 8 that might separate us from Christ or the love of Christ, and we're concerned about that. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, death, life, angels, principalities, all these things. He says these things can't separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But not only that, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. These are the means. These are the context uh, in which we are more than conquerors. In which we are, as Paul says in Greek, super conquerors through Him who loved us. So we wouldn't want an absence of these things. Though in particular, we're grieved. We ask the Lord to remove the thorn in the flesh like Paul does. But when He doesn't, we take comfort that it's working for us an eternal weight of glory and giving us the victory. Well, the deliverance promised in Psalm 91 does include a number of important things. We don't want to focus merely on the negative. What does it include? And I'm conscious that in Psalm 91, this is the type of passage where I could be tempted as a preacher to just tell you all the things it doesn't mean and go on a tirade against the health and wealth gospel and so on and so forth. But Psalm 91 is saying something very important. And how can we not focus on the positive here? I mean, just look at some of the things it says. As, as bone-chilling as Psalm 90 was in showing us the cold, hard reality of death, Psalm 91, verse 3, Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler. He'll cover you with His feathers. Under His wings you'll take refuge, safe and secure, under the shadow of His wings. And really, any 
any time of day, any context, any season of life, any type of threat that you're afraid of. He says, no, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. There are things that we fear in this life at night that we don't fear during the day. There are things we fear during the day that we don't fear during the night. Maybe we don't want to get out of bed and face the things that are set before us in the day. There are arrows flying at us. He's saying in this just powerful and thoroughgoing way, you shall be delivered from suffering and death. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand. Unbelievable. Think about that. Think about if you're uh, attending a sporting event and everybody dies but you. There's some, you know, who knows what it could be, some natural disaster, earthquake, hurricane, something of the sort, um, mass shooting, who knows? You're the only one who survives. That's the kind of intimate care and protection that God is promising to His people. So we need to know what this is talking about. Uh, There's no way that we can afford to not understand this deliverance, as powerful as the language is. Well, first, included in this deliverance is assurance of every believer's deliverance from spiritual death. We need to start there. The psalm doesn't start there, but theologically we need to start there to understand that in Christ, there is assurance that every believer is delivered from spiritual death. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, in the day they ate of the forbidden fruit, they surely died. Dying, they died. In other words, there's a twofold death. They died physically, they began to waste away gradually. And in addition to that, they died spiritually. Ephesians 2 describes this for us that. Uh, Those who are made alive in Christ were once dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And so you conducted yourselves in the lust of the flesh. You were in bondage to sin and Satan and the world. And The reason we call that death is because just as physical death involves separation of soul and body, even so, spiritual death is a separation, an alienation from the life of God in which the whole man in body and soul is separate from God and and, uh, at enmity with God. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, joined forces with the devil against God, enmity against God. And God says, I'm going to send the seed of the woman. He's not only going to crush the serpent's head, but for all of my believing people who are in Him by faith, I will set them at enmity with the serpent. Bond slaves to the the devil, Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses and sins, yes, but when they are saved, when they're converted by the Holy Spirit's power, they now have an enmity with the serpent. They're at enmity with Satan. And they love God. That's exactly what you see in verses 13 and 14. You're going to trample Satan underfoot. Verse 13, verse 14, because he has set his love upon me. So there's a love for God and a hatred of sin and Satan. Every believer has assurance that they've passed from death to life. That greater is he that is in them than he that is in 
the world. And that is fundamental before we move on to the next phase. Understand that. Know that. Realize that, dear believer, in your battle against sin, that you have the upper hand. That you have the sovereign God of the universe living inside of you by His Holy Spirit, enabling you to will and to do for His good pleasure. You are alive. You're no longer alienated from the life of God. You've got the life of God in your own soul at all times. And if you desire to experience more of that, go to Ephesians 3 and pray Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Secondly, this deliverance in Psalm 91 includes assurance that God's specific temporal judgments are discriminating. God's specific temporal judgments are discriminating. And this is especially relevant for Moses' own audience as he's writing Psalm 90 and and as Psalm 91 addresses that similar context. Throughout the wilderness wanderings again and again, you see this idea, who is on the Lord's side? Who will stand with the Lord in faith and obedience, walking in His ways, Okay? There are corporate chastisements that God brings that affect everyone. Right? Daniel went into Babylon with the rest of the, the Jews. Okay? So God chastens nations and churches and we all experience something of the bitterness of that. But, but in another sense, you look at many of the judgments in the wilderness. Who gets swallowed up in the earth? Dathan, Abiram. Who gets destroyed? You know, Korah and his family. Uh, Achan and his household, those who stand against the Lord, those who refuse to take refuge in Him, and those who refuse to walk in His path of liberty and joy and blessing. It's those people that are singled out. Nadab and Abihu, whether they were believers or not, I hope they were, but they stepped outside of their path of obedience and they received a great judgment. And so, Understand, God does not bring judgments willy-nilly. He doesn't bring arbitrary judgments and punish the, the, um, the righteous with the wicked in such a way that the believer can't find deep and well-grounded assurance that if we trust and obey, that God will be with us and guide us through all of the things He's called us to do. And we don't have to worry about the earth swallowing us up. Yes, there will be chastenings uh, at some level. Yes, there will be uh, suffering. And yes, we will eventually die. But we don't have to worry about being destroyed with fire from heaven if we trust and if we obey. And you see this very clearly in verse uh, 12, sorry, verse uh, 10 and following. No evil shall befall you, nor any plague come near your dwelling. And again, think of all the judgments in the wilderness. Who does God judge with these terrifying, mighty judgments? It's those who complain, those who worship idols and engage in sexual uh, sin, those who stand up in rebellion against God and His authority. Again and again, God uh, delivers the Joshua and the Caleb Israelites who say, no, even if we get stoned for this, we're going to stand with the Lord. They don't die in the wilderness. Everybody else does. There's a discriminating nature to God's specific temporal judgments throughout that wilderness wandering. 
And, and God wants us to understand that if we stand like Joshua and Caleb on the Lord's side, that we will not be His debtor. He will open the windows of heaven. He will protect us and guide us through our path of service. But uh, notice, uh, continuing on verse 10, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you. sentence doesn't end there, does it? The sentence ended there when Satan quoted it in the wilderness, didn't it? Satan didn't want to include that last part. In all your ways. In other words, in all the righteous paths that the Lord is leading you in your path of service. Satan wants to give the Lord Jesus Christ in His temptation in the wilderness, he wants to tempt Him and say this is a blank check. There's no condition here. There's no limitation to God's protection. But that's not the case. When we stay within the bounds of the narrow way that God sets before us, it is a way of blessing. When we veer to the right or to the left, if we're believers even, God as a Father lovingly chastens us. And for the, for the unworthy participants at the sacrament in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 11, who fell asleep in Jesus, that involved death. That involves sickness for some, for many in fact, as Paul says. Uh, There is something to be said here for this limitation on the safety, but it's not really a limitation, it's actually an invitation. Walk in those righteous paths, walk in the Spirit, abide in the Lord step by step, not in perfection, but in a clear conscience, step by step, at every moment asking, Lord, what would you have me to do, and walking day by day, repenting of sin and remaining uh, in that path of service that God's given to you, the fact is that He will protect you. And that's, that's our, our third aspect here. Assurance of every believer's invincibility within His God-ordained path of service. Do you realize that? Insofar as you remain and again, we're not speaking of salvation by works, but we are saying that in, God, in the Christian life, there are consequences for obedience and disobedience. Insofar as we continue in that path of service to God that He's laid out for us in all of our imperfections, by faith and repentance, walking with Him, insofar as we continue, we can rest assured that we are actually invincible. Joshua and Caleb could not possibly have died during the 40-year wandering in the wilderness. They couldn't. They couldn't possibly have died. God ordained that they would go into the promised land. And so it doesn't matter how many fiery serpents are rampant in the camp. It doesn't matter if the, 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 you know, the earth is swallowing people up. It, it doesn't matter because as Joshua and Caleb just continue day by day, step by step, through that wilderness to follow the Lord as the, as the tabernacle is packed up and moved to the next location where the pillar of fire and the cloud are leading God's people. They go day by day, week by week, year by year through the 40 years and they cannot die because God promised that they would make it into the land of Canaan. It's a beautiful thing to know that insofar as you're doing what God's called you to do, you don't have to worry, well, I'm going to die before I've fulfilled and, and before I've performed all the good works that God has preordained for me to perform. No, no. 
If you're laboring day in and day out, you can't die before you've performed the good works that God has set before you. You simply can't because He's set them before you. There are such things as judgments. I mean, I, I do believe those uh, disobedient Corinthians who were struck dead uh, or Uzzah who touched the ark and was struck dead, I think it's fair to say that there may have been things they ought to have done later that their death prevented them from doing and that they'll be liable for that in their exit interview at the last day, even if they're believers. But the fact is, insofar as we simply walk faithfully day by day and we do what God's called us to do and we, we don't have to feel this worry, this anxiety that, well, if I die before I've done this, before I've served and, and accomplished this for the kingdom, or before I've spent this time in instructing and, and helping my children, if I die now, what's going to happen to my Christian What? No, no, God will take care of all that. You're invincible until it's your time, dear believer, to enter into glory. And when it is, your labors are complete and you will enter into your rest and God will take care of everything else. And Jesus, as we'll see tonight, had this mentality. He's not going to deviate. The devil's calling him to jump off the roof of the temple and, and make a spectacle and see if the angels will catch him and tempt the Lord. No, no, he's not going to go out of his way. He's going to remain in His God-ordained path of service. And He knows at every given point of threat and opposition, it's not my time, it's not my hour. He knows. And then when His hour comes, He doesn't call down the twelve legions of angels. He knows they're not going to come and help Him because frankly, it's His time. God knows your time. And God will take you from this world at the proper time simply continue in that path of service. In addition, there's assurance of every believer's ultimate deliverance from eternal death. Verse 8, only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. That was true of Joshua and Caleb in the wilderness as time and time again they saw thousands of their fellow Israelites destroyed by the judgment of God, but they only saw it, they didn't experience it. But that's supremely true at the last day when Christ returns. And He says to His sheep and, his goat, and the goats, and He separates them, He says to the goats, depart from Me, workers of iniquity, into the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Fearful words. And the sheep will hear Him utter those words. And they will see the goats depart into that eternal judgment in some way. They'll experience that. Dear believer, you will see that as horrifying as it may sound. But if that's the most horrific aspect that you just see it, what a, what a joy, what a pleasure, what a mercy. You won't experience it. You won't feel the burning of the wrath of God. You'll be like even, uh, well, I'm going to go on a different rabbit trail. We won't say that, but but you, you, you won't have anything of judgment. I was going to say it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that there won't even be the smell of smoke on your garments. It will not come near you. You'll see it. It'll be like the rich man in Lazarus. There's a, there's a distance. There's something of a sight of that wrath, but it comes nowhere near you. 
Think of that fiery furnace under Nebuchadnezzar and the, the people who were fueling the fire. They themselves were scorched and burned to death. It won't come near you. It won't come anywhere near you. The eternal wrath of God. The eternal death and second death of hell. It's not going to come anywhere near you. You'll be delivered. You'll be set on high. Verse 14. You shall call upon the Lord. He'll answer you. He's with you in the time of trouble. He'll deliver you and honor you and give you long life, even eternal life, to know Him and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Uh, Fifthly, this deliverance is an assurance of ever-increasing deliverance from the fear of death. Verse 4 tells us that with the Lord as our shield and our buckler that verse 5 we will not be afraid we won't be afraid of anything you can go through your life in this world and there are fearful things in themselves that will cross your path there will be things where the the well-being of your children is in jeopardy it, it it's it's unknown it's unclear and you're, you're thinking to yourself of all that could happen, all the bad things that could happen. And yes, a believer experiences those things. No question. No question there are times of uncertainty. There are evil days. But the believer is enabled by faith to overcome those fears. It's not that the fears aren't there. It's not that the anxiety is not crouching at our door. If it weren't, do we really love the people that... Their well-being is uncertain and in jeopardy? Of course not. Paul had anxiety for all the churches. But our faith overcomes that fear. The faith by which we seek refuge and we find shelter under the shadow of the Almighty. You think of the shadow. You've got the scorching sun blazing in the wilderness. Uh, You know... I don't know what the SPF would need to be on your sunscreen, but it would have to be pretty high because you're in the 40 years, the scorching sun. But he's a shade. He blocks it. He protects you. He protects you. He guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus with the peace that passes all understanding. Why? Because you've sought refuge in him and you've laid your requests before him. And so you can find that you don't need to fear death. You don't need to fear physical suffering. In fact, Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 says that the devil held you in bondage to the fear of death. Jesus has set you free. Jesus has set you free. He's abolished death. He's taken the sting out of death. Death can buzz around. It can land on you. It can't sting you. It can't sting you. And if you're a believer, uh, really the reality is um, there's honey in store. Honey from the rock of ages. But uh, finally, uh, let's close just with uh, some points of application here. Psalm 91 provides us with several ways for believers to grow in their experience of this deliverance by taking refuge in God. Uh, First, take refuge in the secret place. Uh, I won't spend too much time on this point simply to say we discussed it last night. As you enter the secret place of private worship, as God speaks to you through His Word, and you speak to Him in prayer, and He uses the Word He's spoken in the Scriptures to commune with you and 
and write these things on your heart and apply them to your situation and comfort and instruct you as you're in that secret place understand this is a place to bring your burdens this is a place to bring your frustrations look at the prayer of Moses the man of God Psalm 90 I mean he's just going on and on about all the aspects of the fallen world that are uh, troubling him and frustrating him and discouraging him go to the secret place be like John the Baptist disciples when when Herod decapitated the Baptist and they took his body and they buried it, and it says they went to Jesus, and they told it to Jesus. Go tell Jesus. Take your discouragements. Take your fears. Take your anxieties. Go into the secret place. Tell it to Jesus. He not only is the one who will unburden you, but He's the one who can sympathize because we're told right after they told Jesus about it, Jesus was burdened and He went off into the secret place to commune with His heavenly Father. So He knows all about it. When your heart is overwhelmed, you need to be led to the rock that is higher than yourself to take shelter in His pavilion. Psalm 61. Secondly, take refuge in His name. In other words, in who He is, in His attributes. Verse 14, because He has known my name. We think of Moses taking shelter in the cleft of the rock. Show me thy glory. And he, the Lord says, I'll show you all my goodness. And Moses is there in the secret place of the Most High taking shelter, abiding under the shadow of the Almighty in that cleft of the rock. The name of God for him is a strong tower of safety. And the Lord proclaims the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. The Lord who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin shows mercy to thousands. The Lord who is a just God who will not look away from sin, will, will not merely sweep it under the rug, but punishes iniquity. The, the attributes of the Lord go to the Lord through Christ in the cleft of the rock of ages and recognize that in Him every attribute of God is yours and is for you, not against you. Even His justice. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you. His justice guarantees your forgiveness because of the righteous work of Christ. Thirdly, take refuge in God's promises to you. Internalize. Passages of Scripture, just like Psalm 91, uh, recite them, sing them, meditate upon them because they're talking to you, dear believer. These are promises that are specific. They are uh, individual and personal for all the believing people of God. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High... Take refuge in Him and claim these promises that God's wrath shall never come near your dwelling and that no evil will ever befall you because He works even your afflictions for good. Claim these things for yourself. In addition, take refuge in that path of service that the Lord has given you. Be led by the Good Shepherd. My friends, if you're a Christian, He's leading you in paths of righteousness for, for His name's sake. Be led. Follow Him wherever He takes you. 
He'll make you to lie down in the green pastures. He'll lead you beside the still waters. He'll restore your soul. Come to the table tonight. He'll do it. He leads you in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And insofar as you're following Him, walking with Him, even through the valley of the shadow of death, you'll fear no evil because He is with you. His rod and His staff, they comfort you and He's prepared a table. And you're going to dwell in His house for all eternity. So follow that path of service by the grace of God. Walk with Him and He will make it worth your while. There are pleasures in that way, that path of service. And there is safety and security in it. Not ultimately grounded in our faithfulness, but but our experience of the goodness of that way largely is connected with the extent to which we follow. Well, my friends, I simply leave you with this. Take refuge in Christ Himself. In Him, there's no condemnation. In Him, the love of God in Christ is inseparable from you as a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Take refuge in Him with your weak faith. Take refuge in Him with with your doubts, with your unbelief, notwithstanding. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Take refuge in Him. Cling to Him. Come to Him. And find safety in Him. Let's pray. O Lord our God, You are our dwelling place throughout all generations. From everlasting to everlasting, You are God. We pray that even as we're here in Your dwelling place, that we would experience comfort and assurance even in the face of a world of death and misery and fallenness and frustration. Fill us with joy. Fill us with peace that passes all understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We ask for His sake. Amen.